But it brings me to today's message. You know, what, what Jesus tells us about this life, and, and the only way you're going to know that is by reading his words. And what Jesus tells us about living in whatever place you find yourself this morning, his words, his story, his way turns the world's way of thinking on its head. Have you found that? It's just so, such a contrast, so different, especially as you watch the response of, of believers, of the community of Jesus Christ, of the Christian community, say, in Ukraine, for, for example, today, which is in the news. They're being challenged with Christ's way of thinking about things and responding accordingly in the middle of the destruction of the very things they've lived their lives building. They've lost it all. It's gone. It sure should cause you and I to pause. Do we? Or say, yeah, well, that, that's terrible, and I'll pray about it, but I've got things to do today. I've got people to meet and places to go. I don't know about you, but I'm continually being challenged. Um, every moment, every day, I'm challenged to adjust my thinking about others. I'm being challenged to um, adjust my perceptions of the way things are, the way I always thought that they were, my expectations of what is it that you and I really do deserve. <laughs> yeah. All my wants, all my desires, they're being put to the test as I read God's Word. And I've been under the influence of walking Jesus' way for over 45 years now, and I'm still very acutely aware and Sandy will back me up on this, that there is still a lot of sculpting yet to happen. Right, honey? Yeah, yeah, no, no on me, not you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's on me. Uh, this is all on me now. Um, and, and we've talked about this in the past. Uh, when God takes out a chisel, it can hurt. And in this continuing Holy Spirit transformation that's occurring in all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ by faith, that always leaves us asking the question as we go through this life, are we there yet? And of course, the answer is no, comes the answer from God, not just yet. And one of the biggest lessons we learn is about the exercise of our will and our power over and towards other people. That's where it really, really hits the road, both our friends and our enemies. And we learn that the Holy Spirit is about humility. The, the Holy Spirit is about selflessness, self-sacrifice, things that you and I are just terrible at without God. And this was the startling illumination that the disciples received as they celebrated the Passover with Jesus in the chapter we're coming to now, John chapter 13. Those of you, you who are tracking, you're like, wait a minute, we did chapter 11 last week. Aren't we in chapter 12? No. We're going to chapter 13 because chapter 12 is the triumphal entry, and we're going to do that on Palm Sunday. Is that okay? Okay. Executive decision. A Passover that they're celebrating, by the way, that would be their last Passover with Jesus in human flesh. And they were made to realize during this event that despite the horrific events 
that were about to transpire just the next day, Jesus was in complete, absolute control. Jesus understood what was going on. He understood the times. He knew that the time had come. He knew that his time was very short, and he wanted to use these last final hours with his disciples to prepare them for all that they would face, all that they were going to have to absorb and process over the next coming days. Lesson number one. We have three lessons today. First lesson, foot washing for beginners. You ready? We've got the bowls. They're going to be passed out here. We're water. No, we're not going to do that. We're into the last half of the book of John, by the way, and it covers one week. The whole last half of the book, seven days. First half was about three years, and in verse 1 of chapter 13, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world back to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And by the way, just a little aside, that expression that we're going to see 40 times in these next couple chapters, world. The expression, the world, happens 40 times. It's it's kind of important. Primarily, what Jesus, how Jesus uses that word world is to draw the sharp contrast between His own, His disciples, His followers, and the mass of lost humanity. You see, you and I, if you know Jesus as your Savior, do you? Because if you do, you and I, we're drawn out of the world, and yet we still have to live in it. I know that there are movements amongst Christians where they try to insulate and isolate themselves from the world, but that's not Jesus' way. We are to live in this world until, until the final vindication when justice rolls, but that's not yet. And if God so loves the world, does He? John 3.16, it is in order to draw men and women out of it, out of that destructive force called the world. And we who have been drawn out of the world, out of a global community that is headed to destruction, boy, that's not going to sound well on the newspaper. newspapers. <laughs> Man, stand up before the United Nations with that statement. We constitute a new entity. This is still brand new, and we are by default set against this world. The world loves its own. Have you noticed? The world embraces its own. The world finds security and some kind of common-mindedness amongst its own. The world will favor its own over we Christians every time. It's just the way it is. Get used to it. Jesus is going to say so in a couple chapters. In chapter 15, verse verse 19 of John, if you were of the world, if you were, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But here's our hope, and here's our security. Jesus loves His own. Didn't we just sing this? Jesus loves His own. We are the object of the love of Jesus Christ in these final chapters. We, the called people of God, the disciples of the Messiah, uh, His body, His church, the community of the saved. Jesus loved His own all along, always has, always will, and now He backs up those words with an expression of this love. 
During the supper, verse 2, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. So they're all sat down for the Passover meal. Actually, it's more a case of them reclining on their uh, left arm as they're lying on the ground beside the table, eating and, 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 and sampling food with their right hand. Jesus laid aside his outer garments <clears throat> And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this was shocking, okay? Exclamation point. This was a job so menial that the Jews of Jesus' day would not even allow their Jewish servants to do this sometimes. Like, they would hire Gentiles <laughs> to do this menial task. How many of you like wearing sandals in the summer? Yeah, it's nice, right? It's great. I do too. Sandal-covered feet get dirty. Yeah, even, even yours do, even at the mall. And they'd pick up the dust and the dirt, and in those days, the manure that was all over the streets, all over the roads. But Jesus the one in whom they believed was the living Son of God, the promised Messiah, bent down at their feet and washed all the filth away. Does that sound familiar? He came to Simon Peter, verse 6, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand, but now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. <laughs> impetuous. Peter, who usually put into words what all the rest were already probably thinking, this doesn't make sense, Jesus. This isn't how things are done. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Simon Peter <clears throat> said to him, Lord, not just my feet, but also my hands and my head. Give me a bath, you know, because I want this then if that's what it means. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, because he's completely clean. And you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Peter would understand, the rest of the disciples would understand what was going on here when they fully grasped the significance of the cross over the next coming days. Jesus told Peter that unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And what Jesus is picturing here for not only Peter and the disciples, but for you and I today, it's not the literal dirt found on the soles of their feet, but the spiritual dirt found on the soles of all the people. Jesus is talking about the fact that if anyone is to enjoy a renewed friendship, a renewed relationship with God the Father, he or she must be made clean from sin, from selfishness, from rebellion. And there is only one who is able to accomplish that feat, in, pun intended, accomplish that feat. There is only one way to wash sin away. And this was an idea that the Jewish disciples would have been very familiar with. We, we, we not so much. We have to go back and look at history. But they would have grasped it because it's 
an idea that's pictured by all of their religious ceremonies. The priests would have to have a special ceremonial bath if they were to serve in the temple. And the worshipers who came to sacrifice in the temple, they would have to wash their hands in specially designated basins before bringing the sacrifice to the already washed priest. It's all outside washing, right? It's all on the outside. It's a symbol of the purification that was supposed to take place in their hearts. So Jesus uses the washing imagery that they're all familiar with to clearly show them that His coming, His coming sacrificial work on the cross the next day would once and for all remove the defilement that separated people from God. We're always trying to clean ourselves up, aren't we? Whether you're in the church or outside the church, there's always these moments you come to you say, I've got to change the way things are going in my life. I've got to make a change. And it's usually outward, right? We get these makeovers, and now we're a new person. No, we're not. It's usually what's going on on the outside. Little wonder that Peter responded about, well, then wash me all. Take the bucket, the basin, and pour it over my head. It's his usual over-the-top enthusiasm. And now he's just so excited, he's so on board that he can be a friend with Jesus if he gets all washed. But it's not just the outside, is it? It's the inside. Verse 12, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments again and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, And you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, if you know this, if you get it, blessed are you if you do it, if you do them. Not only did Jesus act out the work that he was going to perform on the cross the very next day, but then he went on to tell the disciples that this kind of sacrificial, self-giving humility should characterize their service to each other and to other people. And as they did it that way, it was on behalf of, because of Him. That's why we do what we do. At least, it's why we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do. A true follower of Christ, someone who's changed on the inside, will be willing and able to obey what Jesus says and models here. We'll be able to do this for each other. The church is not a theater for passive entertainment. Amen? It's become that, unfortunately. The church is a family for active participation. That's what makes it the body of Christ. It's not a comfort blanket for the inadequate walking around sucking their thumb. It's a battleground for all those who have been made whole again. Have you? 
Are you new? Are you transformed? And it's not just a call to hardship either, because look at what Jesus promises his disciples in verse 17. If you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And blessed here literally means being truly joyful in all that you say and all that you do as you serve other people. That was lesson one. That's a hard lesson, right? It's like, okay, Pete, let's, can we just stop with lesson one? I mean, there's two more? Yeah, there's two more. All right, so lesson two. Jesus strengthens us for whatever is to come. And I don't know what's coming your way this afternoon. I don't know what's coming my way. But God does, and he's prepared us. Verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He quotes from the Old Testament. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, and you go, oh, he predicted this, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. That must have made heads turn, right? Like if they were getting a little sleepy at the table, it's like, what? The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Is it you? Maybe it's not one of us. Maybe it's, well, he said it's going to be one of us. Then one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, <clears throat> was, reclining at, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him you know, and to ask Jesus of whom he speaks. He kind of went, ask him. And for the first time, the disciple whom Jesus loved is introduced to us. He will, he will reappear at the Jesus' cross. Um, he's going to reappear at the empty tomb. He's going to be mentioned at the Sea of uh, Tiberias when the risen Jesus Christ appears to seven of his disciples. And then he's going to appear one last final time in the final, final two verses of this gospel that ascribe the gospel to him. So it's going to be, four-letter word, John. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Whoa. Can there be anything more frightening than that? The plot against Jesus, however mediated by wicked human beings, was nothing less and ultimately was a plan of Satan. God ordained in God's mind and plan, but it was satanic. Satan, or Satan, is is a word It means adversary. It means accuser. It can mean opponent. We, through the course of history, have made it the devil's personal name, but it's not. It's 
It's actually his description. It's who he is. It's what he is. Then Jesus said to him, and I've often wondered, did he say it to Judas or to Satan, the accuser, or to both? Anyway, he said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So for three years, Judas Iscariot was thought to be one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. And the inner group trusted him so much that they eventually made him the treasurer of of the whole group. No treasurer jokes right now, please. Jesus, John tells us back in chapter 12, the chapter we missed, that Judas was a thief. So when Jesus announced that one of them was going to betray him at this time, they didn't have a clue that it was going to be Judas. And you can imagine, imagine the tension that would have been in the room when Jesus made that announcement. He, he had just washed all their feet, and that was remarkable enough. I mean, that just stops you in your tracks right there. But this announcement of an imminent betrayal, that would have stunned all of them. And John's made it clear that when Jesus makes a pronouncement, when he makes a declaration and a statement, there's always a purpose. And he's been teaching his disciples some vital life lessons. And he wanted them to grasp who he actually was and that he could be so fully trusted with anything and everything. And he realized that the time had come for his betrayal, for his trial, for, for his execution. And he knew that once, when that happened and was going down, there'd be a lot of confusion. There'd be a lot of doubts. He even knew that they would run away. And this would all be inevitably rising up in their thinking, like, what is going on? How could he, this Jesus, be the Son of God if such horrible, unjust things could happen to him? How could he be the one? How could he be the one of all knowledge if he allowed a betrayer to infiltrate our ranks? So Jesus prepared his disciples in advance for what was going to go down. And he used the expression that the Jews associated with the name of Yahweh, their, their name for the one and the only God, literally saying, when it does happen, you will believe that I am. I am that I am, that personal, special name for God. You see, when you and I immerse ourselves, and I, I got to ask you the question, do you on some kind of regular, habitual basis immerse yourself in the words of God? Or is it just Sunday? When we immerse ourselves in God's words, when we obey the word's commands by the power of the Holy Spirit that's living within each one of us that trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior, we are being prepared for the difficult times. There are difficult times that lie ahead for each of us, times that God already knows about, times that are in his plans for our life. So we are to serve no matter what. And we will be strengthened to serve no matter what. 
We have nothing to fear. There's a third lesson, final lesson. It was directed towards impetuous Peter, but it's directed towards each one of us who calls himself a child of God today. Verse 31, chapter 13. When he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. Well, that's different. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in, him, in himself and glorify him at once. So, so Judas has left the building, right? And he's gone off to arrange the betrayal of his very own master. And while the, while the disciples are not completely aware at this time of Judas' intention, Jesus knows the events that are now in motion. And he knows what it is that lies ahead. So he's describing a victory over the Roman forces. That's what the disciples are thinking. So, so this glory, so what's going to happen now? The triumphal entry was just, just prior, a few days ago. So now this is all going to finally happen. And the victory is going to come and the glory is going to come and our, our Savior and our King is going to sit on the throne and we will... We're his followers. We're his closest friends. We're going to be heroes. Instead, just a few hours before his mock trial and cruel execution, Jesus asserts that this is the time when he and the Father would be glorified. But it's not what they're thinking. Verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. That word there that John deliberately uses for glorification, it echoes the Hebrew word that has to do with God revealing His splendor. They probably thought about verses like Isaiah 49.3, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor, my glory. And then Jesus says in verse 33, little children, that's where John's, that's one of John's favorite expressions of Jesus, and we see it in his letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So, so he's just said he's going to be glorified, and the Father too, and they've got their ideas about what that is, and now he says he's going somewhere we can't go. So how was God going to display his splendor? How is Jesus going to be glorified? Amazingly, this will all come together for them very soon. It's going to be through the shame of the cross. Remember I said in the very beginning, the words of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, turns the world's way of looking at things on its head. The cross of shame was to become the greatest symbol and God's greatest demonstration of His glory and His wonder. 
At the cross, God's holiness and justice were revealed as never before. At the cross, God exposed how seriously He regards your sin and my sin. Yet at the cross, God's love and His mercy are revealed in spectacular, full color. You can't paint that picture. Jesus told His disciples not only that God would be glorified through His work on the cross, but also that He would be seen and glorified through their work to each other. Look at how He follows this up in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If there is anything in this lonely and fractured world that speaks of the radical difference that Jesus Christ makes, it is to be found in a loving and united community of believers. That should put us all on reprimand. Because some of the things... Usually things of this life that really can divide us. Some of the things are really not that important at all that we get hung up over. You say, well, I don't agree with you. That's okay. You can disagree. The standard that should mark out the way of Christians is the way we relate to one another. And that standard is none other, by the, none other than the standard set by Jesus Christ Himself. There is no other way. <laughs> there's only one way for salvation, and there's only one way to live. And they're both through Jesus Christ. As I have loved you, so you should love each other. The foot washing, hanging on a cross, foot-washing of friends, hanging on a cross for enemies. And Peter, in typical fashion, he hasn't gotten over this yet, he rushed in to try to clarify what Jesus was saying. Did you ever do that? Oh, I know what's going on here. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, "Uh, Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. A shadow of what was to come in Peter's life at the end. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Boy, you really don't get it, do you? (laughs) I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, "Will will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Full of promises about what he would do for Jesus. Full of confidence in his own ability to turn around any given situation, even to the extent that he told Jesus he would lay down his life for him. Do you ever make choices? Do you ever make promises to God because you believe you are all that? (laughs) You been there? How did it work out? Little wonder that Jesus, as it were, kind of raised his eyebrow. You kind of see Jesus raising his eyebrow, right, with the response. 
at such a promise? Because the reason Jesus is going to the cross is because none of us can. Completely incapable. It'd be a mockery of the whole thing. The reason Jesus is going to the cross was to lay down his life for Peter and for the rest of us. The Jewish national leader, leaders regarded Jesus as a threat, well, and while Jesus was with his disciples, they felt secure, right? Even with that threat over them. It's like, yep, they got all these plans. We all know he's trying, they're trying to kill Jesus, but we've got Jesus. It's the, uh, it's the my dad's bigger than your dad syndrome. It's like, bring it. We got Jesus. You can't outdo this. You can't outdo him. But what Jesus told them in chapter 13 at that last meal would have shaken them to the core, the very core of their being. He told them that one of them was going to betray him. He told them that he was going to leave them and they wouldn't be able to find him, their source of strength and security. He even told them that their bravest leader, Peter, that within a few hours, Peter would deny that he even knew their beloved master. What thoughts must have raced through their minds? They probably just almost went insane, right? With fear. They probably feared death for themselves or at least excommunication from the whole Jewish system by the religious leaders. What would they do? Where would they go? What about all their dreams and their plans for the future? But Jesus addressed those fears head on. And he does for you and he does for me, wherever you find yourself this morning. Even as Jesus grappled with his own knowledge of the betrayal, the torture, the suffering, and the death that he was going to go through in just a few hours, he took the time to comfort the troubled and confused disciples. And next week, we'll read the follow-up to all of their anxiety. In John chapter 14, verse 1, that begins with, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Him. And then we'll also remember after that message, we'll remember and we'll celebrate our Lord's death through communion and follow that with a family luncheon in the gym. Would you rise with me? And let's pray together and thank God for His Word and thank Him for such a great salvation. Heavenly Father, we bow before You as we stand preparing to unite in our voices as one. We thank You for the salvation that is ours through Your Son and our Savior Jesus. And and for the example he set for us. And God, we first of all thank you that you have placed within each of us your precious Holy Spirit. Not just to lead and to guide, but to give us boldness and strength in the face of fear, in the face of insurmountable odds, with all the doubt and confusion swirling. You've given us a solid footing, an anchor, that holds. And Lord, I pray that as we leave this place of worship, we will continue to worship with what we say and more importantly with what we do. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.